The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you. Good evening. Hello and hello. Do I have this this yet? So, um, so this evening, uh, I want to talk about uh, not self. And you know, I put together this talk quickly this afternoon because I had an emergency dental system thing that had to happen and. I got to the end of preparing and I said, oh, this is awful. This is really, it's too cerebral, it's too much stuff. So um, one of the things that inspired me on this topic is that I'm reading a book by Andrew Olendsky, who is a Buddhist scholar from Barry, Massachusetts, and it's called Untangling the Self. And so the way he opens it, I think, is really appropriate. So I'm going to read that to you. It is from a sutta. Tangled within, tangled without. People are tangled in tangles. And so I ask you, Gautama, who can untangle this tangle? A wise one of stable virtue, developing mind and wisdom, a prudent and ardent person, They can untangle this tangle. So what we're going to do is try to be wise, stable, of stable virtue, prudent, and ardent, especially the ardent part, and see if we can untangle anything. So the last couple of days, uh, I have attended a, a multi-day workshop on diversity. And one of the um, one of the topics no, that's not it. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's going to be even worse if I can't find the talk. So uh, one of the topics that we covered in diversity had to do with biases. And so the thing about biases is uh, that we all have them. And that it is really foolish to try to say, I'm going to get rid of my biases, because they're pretty much hardwired in. And the the biases arise from what happens to us over time. I have to think about the title of my talk. That helps a lot. There we go. Thoughts. (laughs) So, biases occur because of things that happen to us. Events that occur conditions that occur, experiences that we have, and we, we have emotional responses to those experiences. And those emotional responses then get sort of recorded in our brains and neurologically. And we say, okay, so if I'm, as a child, feel unsafe, I may decide... If this is something that is persistent, I may decide that people can't be trusted. And this becomes a bias that shows up all my life. I don't trust you. Maybe I'll grow to trust you a little bit, but not completely. And this becomes a bias. It isn't something that's wrong with me. 
And if I knew that about myself, I would say, oh, okay, now you have a tendency to not trust people. And there's this voice over here constantly telling you, don't trust, don't trust, don't trust. Now you're getting a little friendly with that person. You don't know that person. You shouldn't be doing that. Okay, so this is how biases work. You know, they just, they are there. So as I was thinking about biases and who am I and how do I form who I am, well, you know, that got me right into not-self because Buddhists are quite sure there's no self. But the truth is, I'm sitting here on this cushion in front of you and I clearly am here on this cushion in front of you. It's also true that exactly who I am Exactly how I am is a function not only of me, but of you. The self, self, is a changing feature of the conditions of our lives. Self is a changing feature of the conditions of our life. Sometimes I'm this way, sometimes I'm that way. Used to be I was that way. Most of the time I'm the other way. And we incorporate this and we decide this is who I am. And sometimes the conditions are completely different than when we formed that opinion and we still say this is how I am. And to the extent that we are solidly, this is who I am, and it doesn't match the existing conditions, suffering occurs. Suffering occurs. So, one aspect of dealing with biases is we have to know we have them. We have to know what they are. We have to know how we form them. So this process of understanding ourselves also involves the process of of knowing what is self. How do I form self? What do I mean when I say self? Oh, there's the big word. It's meaning. Meaning. So in his book, uh, Mr. Olensky talks about thinking of the formation of of, of who the self is, how the self is, as being like rain. So rain happens. It's raining. It's not raining. There are conditions for rain. And you can say, you know, when it's raining, you can say it's raining. There's rain here. And then it's not raining. And the rain doesn't go into the other room. The conditions that exist lead to rain. It's not like a cloud comes over, rains here, moves there, rains there, moves there, rains there. It just happens. And then it just doesn't happen. And the formation of self is like that. It's like this, and then it's not like this. So, for example, 
we could say I'm sitting here and I am the teacher. I'm this, actually, let's say I'm the speaker. I'm a speaker here. And I'm speaking. And the idea that I am a teacher depends on someone is receiving something that I say and that they value it or evaluate it or somehow receive what I say. The idea of teacher requires another person. I can't be a teacher by myself. It requires another person. And if I get up and leave the room, then you are all staring at an empty space here where there is no teacher. And I am a woman out in the hall, but I am not a teacher. And I'm not even a speaker anymore. Now, I might try to remain a, a speaker or a teacher and go out and try to make something happen. But it doesn't exist in and of itself. It exists because of the conditions that are arising in any given moment. So, it isn't let, that I stop being when I go out into the other room. It's just the conditions change. So, what does it mean to say I'm a teacher? What if I say I'm a poet? I could say I'm a poet. Call myself a poet. That feels good. Well, that implies something. Maybe I like poetry. I write poetry. I think poetic thoughts. There are lots of ways of thinking about it, but it's all a mind construct of what it means to be a poet. If I say I am a wife, it requires a husband. I can't be a wife by myself. There's, there's, some, there's some completion of that thought that makes me a something, that makes you a something. It isn't absolute. I might say, you know, I'm really quite shy when I I walk into a room. And then I walk into an empty room. Am I shy? No, I'm just walking into an empty room. All of the things we say about ourselves are in fact conditional. They arise out of the conditions of the environment, of the moment. So, one of the things we do, so there is, um, I read this morning a story about a four-year-old girl who was jumping on a trampoline and managed to hit something cattywampus and flew through a screen out the window of a ninth-floor building. And she landed on the ground and only damaged her collarbone. That four-year-old girl was absolutely convinced later, after the fact, that she could fly. She did fly. Now, the fact that she involuntarily hit the ground sort of doesn't go into that magical thinking of, I am a flying being. And she had all manner of difficulty as a consequence of believing this 
that she, was a, that she could fly. And other people who heard about this said, oh, this is a miracle. And I personally have no idea how any of that happened. I don't know what she landed on, how she landed, but, you know, nine stories, is she's, she was going 60 miles an hour or something like that when she hit whatever she hit. And she wasn't damaged. But I can't explain that. And all the attempts to explain it become a form of magical thinking. It's all mental construct about it. We're pretty sure that she can't fly, but it's no different than our deciding that we are invincible, we'll live forever. You name what characteristic that you have that you think will last forever. So when... In Buddhism, we tend to, when we talk about how we create a self, we talk about the aggregates. So just for purposes, because I'm going to refer to some of this, I'm just going to go through what that is. So the aggregates are, are there is the sensing, there's the, the touch, taste, smell, hear, feel. This, these, these are the sensing. That's number one. We sense things in the material world. Or we think thoughts, thinking. The second of these is uh, feeling tone. It's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, whatever we experience. And that pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral leads to I want or I don't want, or I don't care. Now we're starting to talk about an emotional response, but the aggregate is actually the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It just leads to this emotional response. The third thing is perception. This is where we name things. We, we assign meaning. It's the conceptual stage. And we say, okay, this, this is a bowl, really. Or a bell. And we can say, oh, okay, so, all right, so, uh, but it is, it's cold and it's um, hard and it you know, kind of rings, ring. What does ring mean? All of this is conceptual perception. It's ideas we have about what the experience is. Okay. And then there's thinking. Now I say, I like the sound, I don't like the sound. So this aspect of thinking sort of also has to do with assigning meaning to things. Okay, so we have the the emotional meaning that comes from the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and we have the meaning that comes from this is what the this is what this is, this is what you can do with this. That's the thinking. And I, I want more of this, I want less of this. This is all the thinking. And then the fifth one is consciousness. This is the act of knowing, the mental activity of knowing something. So if I'm not looking at it, if I'm not noticing it, if I'm not aware of it, does it exist? Sometimes we think that we are our consciousness. You know, we sort of, okay, the knower. I'm the knower of what's going on. I'm the knower. 
So I had an experience in the last year where I cut my thumb with a knife in the kitchen pretty badly, and it was bleeding profusely. And I realized I was about to faint, and I said, no, I'm not going to faint. I was just... Okay, I realized that's happening, so of course it's not going to happen, and I was out. And then I was not. And there was nothing in between from the point of view of my consciousness. But the body kept breathing, the body was still there. In fact, I was still there, only I, as consciousness, was not there. Did not exist for that period of time. You know, we all go to sleep every night and we're used to sort of slowly drifting off and slowly coming back. And But when it just shuts off like a light switch, it really gets your attention. I just wasn't here. I wasn't there. It was gone. And yet... I was then awake, we'll call it awake, I was conscious again, and nothing about me seemed to change, I was still pretty much the same self, except what happened when I wasn't. (laughs) So I fold those things together and I say, okay, so all of the things that I think are me are, you know, kind of conditional like the rain and if the conditions are not the same then I am not the same so while this person persists the self is kind of poorly defined hard hard to name hard to hard to put down this is what the self is because it is dependent on conditions it doesn't exist in an absolute way, whatever I name as me. So what about these biases that show up all the time and seem to be there all the time? What are they? Well, you know, they got biologically entrained by those emotional responses that were attached to the experiences. We are also our physical bodies, And we carry a neurological record of things. We tend to say this is self, but it's no more self than the awareness trick. No, it's just biological stuff happening. So if perception is the thing that creates meaning, the meaning... And the emotional response is what creates how we respond. Then, what that says is that in any moment, I can be whatever I have conditioned myself to be, and I can be anything. Now, that's not absolutely true. You know, I'm probably never going to be an astronaut, a little, little late in life for that, and I probably will never be an elephant. So within the conditions of my environment and this body and this age, there are things that can occur and not occur. 
Those are conditions that come and go. The self is created by what we think about and by our emotional responses to things. What we think about and our emotional responses to things. I want to give you a quote here. Let's see if I can find it. Because I love this quote from from Mr. Olinsky. The unique, unique thing about each person's lived experience is, well, it's uniqueness. Because everything is changing all the time, every single thing that happens is new. The entire universe is in a fresh configuration every moment. There may be patterns that repeat, but no two sets of phenomena are exactly the same ever. The unique thing about each person's lived experience is, well, it's uniqueness. Because everything is changing all the time, every single thing that happens is new. The entire universe is in a fresh configuration every moment. There may be patterns that repeat, but no two sets of phenomena are exactly the same ever. This statement just blows me away. When you think about it, who you are, how you interact with everyone, how I interact with you is different in every moment. And it never occurs the same way because the conditions are never the same. This group of people will never be in the room at exactly this time in these conditions again. Everything is happening anew. Now, there are two things that kind of fall out of this for me. One of them is the possibility that I don't have to be controlled by my biological imperatives or by how things have been before or how I would like them to be. I don't have to be controlled by that. At the same time, the second thing that comes out of that is a realization that what I entertain conditions what happens next. These conditions arose because you chose to come here. I chose to come here. The weather is the way the weather is. And my choice to come here, your choice to come here, conditioned this. How you arrived conditioned what you hear and don't hear. How I prepared conditioned how I can speak or not speak. My intentions color how I can speak with you. If my intentions are to show you how smart I am, you're going to feel mm, uh, 
like I'm a pedant, that I'm trying to... You, you'll notice I'm trying to impress you. That's, that will be your experience. If my intention is to help you see something new, and I can spread that enthusiasm, your experience is going to be different. Your experience might be, don't tell me that. I don't know. I don't know. I hardly know what I know. (laughs) I certainly don't know what you hear, what your conditions are, what your feelings are, what your perceptions are. I don't know. So I don't have any control. (laughs) No control. But I have intentions. And the intentions that I arrive with condition the spirit in the room. So I can't control what happens, but I can certainly influence what happens in my life in this moment because each moment is unique. All the conditions are unique. There are patterns. There are patterns. Things happen in repeating patterns, but they are not exactly the same. So I see this as a, a kind of opportunity. An opportunity. An opportunity to notice when what arises is influenced by something that I'm carrying with me. And the responsibility to notice what I'm carrying with me. What is my attitude? What is my intention? How am I showing up for this moment? If the self is constructed in each moment by what I'm seeing and how I'm assigning meaning, am I carefully assigning meaning or am I just saying, oh yeah, I know what that is. I know what that is. Don't have to think about that. Or am I saying, oh, what else is happening here? You know, when we were talking about biases the last couple of days, one of the points was that the, the response that arises out of a bias actually depends on your not noticing that it's a bias, not noticing that it's showing up. So if you see, if you know that uh, you don't trust people, and you get a queasy feeling about somebody. And then you say, okay, this is me not trusting people. Then you can decide whether it's a wise choice or not. So I'll give you an example of how that works. So, and I apologize if any of you have heard this example before. It's old. But so there was a time when I was out walking my dog at night uh, uh, and I was over in Berkeley at the School of Religion, and it was, it's a well-lit place, and we were out walking, and I noticed this person uh, over next to the building behaving in a very bizarre way. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, Maria, you know, if that were a man, you'd be really worried. And I walked on, and the woman attacked me. 
Okay, so biases here, lots of them. One of them was that I'm more afraid of men than women at night in the dark. Another one was the assumption that that I would ignore how I felt queasy and worried about this bizarre behavior because it was a woman and not a man. Foolish, foolish. The bias showed up in one case if I'd paid attention to actually what was happening as opposed to my assumption about it. I could have prevented being attacked by this woman. The other was this foolish assumption, bias, fear about the difference between the genders and the, at night proved to be really foolish. So that's, that's, that's what I mean. When you, if you see, if you notice something happening, say, what else is happening? You know, should I be wary under these conditions? Yes, you should be wary under these conditions. So I was so busy berating myself about having a bias that I was ignoring, <laughs> congratulating myself um, foolishly. So, so this, is, this is a way that it works. You know, just how, how am I noticing this now? What is going on here? What else? What is being triggered here? I'm feeling uncomfortable about this person. Why am I feeling uncomfortable about this person? Oh, they're wearing yellow. I hate yellow. That guy that, you know, flipped me off yesterday was wearing yellow, and now I'm feeling really, everybody who wears yellow, I'm suspicious of. When I realize that, I can stop being upset just because you're wearing yellow. Okay, so we, it's a tool to say, what else is going on here? And to, to not let the biases run away, ignore the bias, Pretend you don't have it. Come back. Realize that an emotional response is responsible also for how we feel about something. That it's an emotional response. We don't deny emotional responses. We show up for them and say, oh, I had a, something that occurred yesterday that really upset me. And I was driving, and it was night, and I was tired, and I'm thinking, okay, i got to hold it together because I have to be able to see. Crying is not acceptable. And I pulled off the exit right by my house. Tears, tears. Terribly upset. Go home. Tell my husband how terribly upset I am about this horrible thing that happened. Today, I can't even remember why I was upset about it. I mean, I, I know intellectually what it was, but it's, it turns out it's not really as big a deal as, as I made it out to be. Because there was an emotional response happening that I just needed to get back into perspective. Fortunately, there was nobody involved with this problem that I could yell at so I didn't do something foolish and stupid and hurtful. I was able to recover from that. But it was another way of of noticing, okay, there's a really strong emotional response here. What's this about? And, And what it was about had to do with, you know, 
I don't know how much I want to tell you about this, but it was basically a matter of, of not being seen. Simple, you know, childish, not being seen problem. Tied to a lot of other things in my life where I felt dismissed, ignored, pushed away. To that, I had an emotional response. But that's not who I am. It doesn't have anything to do. It's not, a, it's not a permanent condition. Any more than those other people, for them, it wasn't a permanent condition either. And so the way that I maintain some equanimity is by not holding on to that horrible slight, which, you know, today is hardly anything. So it becomes a mechanism for, for noticing that the strong movement of emotions through our, through our bodies that we associate with self that actually have nothing to do with self. They just arise out of the conditions of the moment. If we're not conscious of our biases, we are doomed to constantly be controlled by them. Good, bad, or indifferent. And we will continue to see others as the activators, initiators of our suffering. It's very interesting to discover how often the suffering that we have is totally self-generated. It's generated out of how we see ourselves and what we call ourselves. So it becomes very useful to practice with what am I actually feeling in this moment? What is, what is this? Am I naming something and am I naming it correctly? How tightly am I holding on to the name of this thing, this emotion, this temporary feeling? Am I rushing from this is unpleasant to I don't want this? Or can I just say, this is really unpleasant. (laughs) I'm really ready to go home now. Can I just say this is unpleasant? And say, hmm, that's interesting. Watch how I respond to this is unpleasant. Watch what I'm doing. Oh, Get this twitch going here. What's that about? Hmm. And it becomes a cue. Oh, twitch happening. Okay, irritant. There's an irritant here. What's going on? What's triggering me? How am I being triggered? Or do I need to pay attention to this? It's a way of not living an automatic life of not living just through the responses to what's happening. Because every moment is different. So, what I would suggest is, first of all, notice what your triggers are. Don't try to get rid of them. They're there for a very good reason. They have positive aspects and not-so-skillful aspects. Just know them, find them, see them, 
Don't name them as me. Just notice that they come and go. And notice when they're, when they're positive and notice when, when they're not so positive. Huh. Be aware of the conditions in your mind. The opening of the Dhammapada. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows like the wheels of an ox behind wheels of a cart behind the hooves of an ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. When you know that you are feeling ill will, it's not easy to say, I'm going to let that go. But you can say, ooh, boy, that feels bad. I don't like the way that feels. And the very act of noticing that feels bad and I don't like that and know that that's an I don't like that, that's unpleasant, will often soften you enough that you can move from that to a peaceful mind. Maybe not in that instant. Maybe it'll take three or four moments for you to get there. Maybe it'll take longer. Sometimes things are just plain unpleasant. But they just are. And they change. And they arise out of conditions. So I'm going to try one other thing that's experimental. (laughs) Because it's the beginning of the year, and why not? So I'm going to read you a poem... And I'm going to tell you something about it. So this is a poem about a container. So I want you to think of something like a bowl, a metal bowl. And I say metal just because this one, you know, it's kind of got dents in it. It's, this is the, the ringing bowl, the singing bowl. So it's, it's got a shape, and it's empty. Okay, so the poem is about a container, and at one point I use the word source, and I want you to think experience. Substitute the word experience when I say source. All right, so here it is. I am a container. It's not so much what I hold, but that I can. What I offer <clears throat> fills me and is given on the way, it doesn't belong to me any more than I am the source, but that the source sustains, burnishes me, gracing me as it flows into and out. The hieroglyphs on my surface reflect visions, scars, and souvenirs of places I have been. But it is emptiness that is my beauty and strength. Where there is possibility, there is opportunity. A willing, open vessel. I am a container. It is not so much what I hold, but that I can. 
What I offer fills me and is gone on the way, given on the way. It does not belong to me any more than I am the source, but that the source sustains me, burnishes me, gracing me as it flows into and out. The hieroglyphs on my surface reflect visions, scars, souvenirs of places I have visited. But it is emptiness that is my beauty and strength. Where there is possibility, there is opportunity, a willing, open vessel. Those are my thoughts. Thank you. I welcome any comments you have, any rocks you'd like to throw. I'm feeling very unbiased at the moment. (laughs) Are you feeling selfed? Are you feeling possibilities? My hope is that you feel fluidity and openness. Yes? Um, I was just going to say that I've been struggling with the concept of non-self for quite a few months now. Mm-hmm. And I was so happy to hear that this is what you were going to talk about. <laughs> and it's, it's brought a lot more clarity um, to me. So Great. thank you. And um, I was wondering, I had recently purchased a book called Having No Head. Uh, I don't know this with, book. Oh, okay, which is also supposed to be um, about that. So I didn't know if you, I was wondering if you No, I'm unfamiliar with it. <laughs> well, thank you. Anything else? Okay. Then we are all happily enjoying the new year and the full moon. Good night.